Well, over the summer, we've been looking at this theme of trusting God even when life hurts. Well, for the next three weeks, I'm going to look at three different interactions that Jesus had with people during differing lives of crisis in their lives. I think as we look at God's word, as we look at Jesus' actions, as we look at Jesus' heart, we'll gain even further insight into trusting him when life hurts. Roger Storms, as a pastor's First Christians Church in Chandler, Arizona, tells this story. One Sunday, a car had broken down in the alley behind our facilities, and the driver had jacked up the car and crawled underneath to work on the problem. Suddenly, we hear help, screaming for help. The jack had slipped. The car had come down on top of him. Someone shouted out, call 911, and a couple ran for the phone. Several of our men gathered around a large car and strained to lift it up off the trap man. Nurses from our congregation were rounded up and brought to the scene. Somehow the men were able to ease the car's weight off the man, and he was pulled free. Our nurses checked him over, and he was scratched up and shaken, but otherwise was okay. When this man was in peril, people did all they could to help, risking themselves, inconveniencing themselves. Whatever was necessary to save this man, they were ready to try. See, we regularly get ourselves into situations in our lives that put us in need. We have health challenges because we have to deal with our fragile bodies. We look at our bank account and we don't see the money in there to, to take care of that next bill. We sit in a chair in our living room staring blankly against the wall or we're lying in bed at night, unable to fall asleep, just thinking over and over again about the broken and strained relationships of life. So many real needs, so many real hurts. Like that guy underneath the car, we cry out hoping someone will come and help us. We can get into a rut into our lives, kind of going from crisis to crisis, going from need to need, and then we never actually get to the answer, and we never actually get to the solution. Whatever the crisis of the moment is, we think that's our greatest need for money, our healing, our rescue. Our greatest need is defined by our latest crisis. For the most part, so often, that's how we live. In our biblical account today, a man is brought to Jesus in crisis. He's paralyzed. It defines his whole life. He can't walk. He can't work. He's a a terrible financial burden upon his family. He's an emotional bundle of, of needs. Life nowadays is so difficult for someone who is paralyzed. Can you just imagine how much more difficult it would have been in Jesus' day? The sky is in the midst of enduring a never-ending crisis, a 24-7, moment-by-moment, day-in, day-out, life, difficult, stressful crisis. So everybody knows what Jesus is going to do, right? right? He's going to go and meet this guy's greatest need, right? It's so obvious. But nobody was ready for what happened on that day. So please turn in your Bibles with me 
to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we'll read this amazing account of Jesus. This amazing story, this has such strong theological impact. It's recorded in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew 9 and Mark, excuse me, in Luke 5, and then where we're going to read it in Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, After some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they they removed the, the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Father, now as we pray, we exclaim the same thing. We have never seen anything like our Jesus. He is amazing in his truth and his life in his death and his sacrifice In his resurrection, we are amazed by him. And today, may the truth of that challenge and change our hearts. In his name we pray, amen. Well, Mark has masterfully written this story with drama and intrigue and surprise because it was masterfully lived out by Jesus in real life, in real time for all to see. Today, I want to look at the story of the healing of the paralytic from the perspective of three surprised groups of people. First, let's look at the surprise seekers of the healing. Jesus is back in Capernaum. It's his ministry headquarters. Verse 1 says that he was at home, which is probably Peter's house. A great crowd had gathered. Many people followed Jesus. Many people came to Jesus because they heard about his teaching. and Many people brought their sick for Jesus to heal. He was popular. He was known as someone who taught with authority. He was known as a healer of diseases. He was a friend of sinners. He was known as a person who loved them. He was not separate from them. He's not some elitist religious figure. No, he was with them. He was in their homes. He touched them. He walked with them. 
He taught them. He cared for them. He treated each one with such dignity and purpose. He was totally unlike anyone they had ever encountered. So many had gathered that day that the whole house was filled. And not only that, but but every open window was surrounded by people. Not only that, every open door was surrounded by people. People straining to hear. The house is encircled with people hanging on the every word of the master teacher and what he had to say. Well, four friends wanted to bring their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. Jesus had performed hundreds of miracles and and they knew, they knew that if they could get their friend to Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. See, Jesus wasn't just a healer, he was a compassionate healer. He wanted to heal people. He used his healing power to show his power, but also to show his love. They knew Jesus would heal their friend, not just because Jesus had the power to heal, but because Jesus had the heart and the compassion and the love to heal their friend. Well, when they finally get to where Jesus is, they can't get in, right? It's it's not possible. It's not just that a couple people would, would need to move, but there's a whole lot of people in the way. There's no way for them to get inside. So they come up with a plan. Hey, hey, let's head up to the roof. The roof is flat. We can remove some tiles. We can remove some boards. And we can let our friend down through the roof. So as Jesus is teaching, can't you just imagine the commotion and the confusion? Dust starting to fall. You know, dirt starting to fall on the people below as they remove the roof. Maybe at first they thought, hey, maybe they're just opening the roof. So, so maybe there's people up on the roof that want to hear Jesus. And if they open up the roof, you know, Jesus' voice can get up on the roof. But then the small hole started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the disruption kept getting louder and louder. And the situation was getting messier and messier. And soon there's a really big hole. And then to the great surprise of everyone, to the whole crowd, through this big hole, something's coming down, right? It's a man on a mat, a sickly, paralyzed man, probably unkept, probably with a scared look on his face, probably a little embarrassed. And probably a whole lot hopeful. Probably brimming with anticipation and expectation. A heart that's ready to explode with his faith. A sure faith that he will soon be walking again. So the four men are looking down through the hole. The paralyzed man is on his mat. The amazed crowd and and the moment and everyone has turned their attention to Jesus. The scene is set up. Everyone's ready for the miracle. The situation is clear. The paralyzed man is on the mat in the middle of the room. The friends just went through all these extraordinary lengths to bring him to Jesus. Jesus, the miraculous healer. It's not hard to figure out what Jesus is supposed to do next. Right? Jesus is supposed to heal him. 
Jesus is supposed to miraculously heal his body so that he can pick up his mat and walk out the door. Jesus is supposed to meet his greatest need. Jesus is supposed to fix his immediate problem. Everybody knows what's going to happen next. How often is that true of us, right? We know exactly what Jesus is supposed to do next in our lives. We got that thick curtain in front of us in our path. We don't know what's coming next, but we know what Jesus is supposed to do. We know the next thing that he needs to do for us. I need this. And Jesus, you can meet my need. So it only makes sense that the next thing you're to do, Jesus, is to meet my need. Give me what I want. Help me the way I want you to help me. We can be just like that crowd. We can be just like the men who lowered their friend. We can be just like that man lying on the mat. Jesus, you are supposed to meet my expectation. Jesus, it's not hard to figure this out. What you're supposed to do for me next. You're supposed to meet my needs. And he does. Folks, he does. He meets the greatest need. But oh, so often as only he can do. So the scene is all set up. And what does Jesus do next? He surprises everybody. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine in the crowd? They're, what, did, what did he just say? They're looking at you. What? What did, what did he just say? Now the religious leaders are all grumbling. They're all questioning. The four men and the paralyzed men are kind of, they're, they're confused. They're disappointed. What's, what's happening? Oh, Jesus, perhaps, perhaps you didn't realize that this guy we, layer, we lower down here, he's paralyzed. You know, this whole forgiveness thing is great, but we didn't just carry him all these miles We didn't just go up on this roof and open the roof and lower them down through this roof. We didn't go through all of this for you to say his sins are forgiven. See, perhaps you don't really understand what's going on. We want you to help his greatest need. We want you to fix his immediate problem. The paralyzed guy was probably thinking something similar. I want to walk again. That's what I want. Jesus, you're supposed to help me. Jesus, I got this immediate problem. It's more important than the forgiving of my sin. Well, does he? Does the paralytic man have a greater need in his life than the forgiving of his sins? He doesn't. Folks, he doesn't. There is nothing more important than to have a right relationship with God. Nothing. Nothing. That's part of what Jesus is teaching here. Having a right relationship with Jesus is more important than walking. It's a reality check for us. Do you believe that your greatest need in your life is to have a right relationship with God? Do you believe that knowing God is more important 
than the solving of your immediate problem? Do you really believe that having a growing knowledge, a growing and your following of God is, is actually the most important need of your life? Do you believe that if this man was never healed, that he had already received the greatest blessing, the greatest help, the greatest hope that he could ever have, that his greatest need was met? Do you believe that your spiritual health and vitality is the first and greatest need of your life? How many of us have been in church long enough to know how to answer all those questions, right? We're smart people. The challenge for us isn't knowing that the most important thing in our lives is having a growing relationship with God. The challenge for us, a problem with us, is actually living out our lives like that's the most important thing. Of course, pastor, of course. Jesus, my spiritual health, my first and greatest need, of course. So the question that lingers in the air, why don't we live that way? Think about it. What would change in your life if having a growing relationship with God was really the most important thing in your life? What would change at work, for example? Would you stop using colorful metaphors? Would you stop gossiping and complaining? Would you start praying for your coworkers? Would you start serving your boss in such a way as to demonstrate the love of your Savior? What would change if, you, if having a growing relationship with God was the most important thing in your home? Would you engage with your children differently? Would you love your spouse, your wife, your husband more sacrificially? Would you manage your finances differently? How would your personal life change? Would you stop doing some things in your free time? Would you start doing other things? What would change a church if we really believed that having a growing relationship with God was the most important thing? Would you become a more committed member? Would your church attendance change? Would your involvement in Bible studies change? Would you give more freely of your of your time and service and in your money and the offerings? I mean, God was really, really important when we got saved. And God is really, really important when we die. But there's that in-between time, right? If we're honest with ourselves, that we often let so many things become so much more important than they should be. Do we really believe that having a spiritual, vibrant life is our greatest need and our greatest joy? What an amazing truth that Jesus is teaching here. Every day of our lives, every day, even in the face of great temporal need, nothing is more important than having a growing, substantive, real relationship with him. Oh, beloved, how long will it take us till we realize that Jesus truly is the answer to our greatest need, our everyday need, and that he is our greatest joy? What a challenging truth for all of us to apply today, but it's a necessary challenge for us. Secondly, I think that Jesus forgiving this person should actually be a surprise to us, the readers, for a totally different reason. 
Think about it with me now. What's Jesus' core message? What's the very heart of what Jesus would teach? If you look over, if you still have your scriptures open to Mark 1.15, here's the summary of Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The universal message of the Bible from start to finish is that belief and repentance are part of forgiveness. So did Jesus just break his own rules? Did Jesus just kind of forgive this guy without this guy asking for forgiveness? Did Jesus just forgive this guy with this guy, you know, not being repentive? You know, what's up with that, right? I think we get the answer to that in verse 8. It says that Jesus knew the hearts of the scribes. It says many times, actually, of Jesus throughout the Gospels that Jesus knew people's hearts. For example, in John 2, 24, it says, But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew the heart of the people. Jesus knew in himself what was going on inside of other people. He wasn't guessing, he knew. Jesus knew the questioning hearts of the scribes there in verse 8. And he knew the repentant heart of the paralytic man. See, verse 5 tells us something that Jesus saw. Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? The faith of the four men that brought the paralyzed man to Jesus and the faith of that paralyzed man upon the mat. He could see their faith. He knew their faith. See, if we really believe that the most important thing for this paralyzed man was to be in a right relationship with God, then Jesus did. In forgiving this man's sin was the most gracious and loving thing that he could do. What Jesus did was the most gracious and loving thing that could be done for him. Jesus focused on that man's truest and greatest need. Jesus looked beyond the surface. He looked to his heart. He saw his faith and so wonderfully and truly saved this man. You know, what is it good to walk if your heart is unconverted? Was it good to have great wealth if you don't know Jesus and forgiveness? What good is it, fill in the blank, with your greatest want, fill in the blank, with your greatest need, what good is it without Jesus? What good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Jesus knew the paralyzed man's greatest need. Jesus knew his repentant heart. And Jesus gave him the greatest gift of all, forgiveness. Our Jesus is so gracious. There were no hoops to jump to, through, you know. There was no, hey, you got to do this religious list first. And when you get all these things done on the list, then come back and see me. No, there was a willingness from Jesus to extend his grace to show his mercy, to forgive the repentant, to love him. Folks, Jesus knows our heart. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your sin. He knows your stain. He knows us. 
And what does he do? He is offering to you the greatest gift of all. You see, you can trust Jesus to meet the greatest need of your life. He's not waiting around for you to say it the right way. He's not waiting around for you to perform the right religious works. No, he's offering you his forgiveness as he, as he looks at your heart. He's right now willingly extending his grace and his mercy in response to your faith because he loves us. We can trust Jesus to meet the greatest need of our life, a right and growing relationship with God. Well, next we see another group that's surprised, the surprise leaders of the people. The religious leaders are surprised that, that what Jesus said to the paralyzed man, that his sins are forgiven. And again, they're surprised for a completely different reason. They're offended. Look there at verse 7. It says, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, one of the amazing ironies and the, the twists of the story is that the religious leaders are absolutely right. They got the doctrine right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus saying that he is forgiving sins is saying that he is doing what only God can do. And the religious leaders knew that. See, the problem with verse 7 isn't the doctrine. It's how they applied that teaching. They would not accept that this man before them, Jesus, had the authority to forgive sins because he is God. See, in this passage, make no mistake. Jesus is loudly claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one and only Son of God. In verse 10, Jesus uses the divine messianic title, Son of God, from Daniel chapter 7, claiming to be the Son of Man. Excuse me, that divine messianic title is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. And that divine title is a messianic title. He was claiming that for himself. He was claiming to be the Messiah, to have the authority to forgive sins, an authority that only God has. Well, not only does Jesus proclaim that he's divine and that he has authority to forgive sins, he then says, guess what? I'll prove it to you. I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority, the right, the privilege to forgive this man's sin. So he says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And he immediately picked up his bed and he went out before all of them. Now, it's obviously much easier to say to someone that their sins are forgiven rather than to say to someone who's paralyzed, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because there's no visual proof 
that someone's sins are forgiven, but there is immediate, visible accountability to say to a paralytic man, arise, take up your bed, and walk. So Jesus does the harder thing, the visual healing, to prove that he has done the easier thing, the invisible thing of forgiveness. The healing is proof, as the verse said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. But now listen closely here. It's infinitely much harder, so much harder, to actually do the forgiving of sins, right? Because the forgiving of sins require Jesus to go to the cross. The forgiving of sins would require Jesus, the perfect lamb, to be sacrificed as a propitiation for our sins, to endure the very wrath of God for our sins. It's certainly easier for Jesus to say that your sins are forgiven. But it was actually certainly, substantially, and extremely harder for him to actually pay the price in offering the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is teaching so many things in this passage. And one of the truths in this passage that he is teaching us is that he is the divine son of God with the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to ask two people to come up here. I'm going to ask Jeff to come up. I'm going to ask Travis to come up. We're going to have a quick little visible um, illustration here. So I hope this goes well. If it doesn't go well, I'm just going to edit it out of the video. So we'll just try to see how this, how this goes here. Okay, We're going to do a little pretending this morning Okay, to illustrate a point about forgiveness. So I'm going to have uh, Jeff pretend, make sure we get that word, pretend to walk up to Travis and punch him in the nose. Oh, no, poor Travis is there. His nose is bleeding. His nose is broke, right? And now I'm going to go over to Jeff, and I'm going to tell Jeff, Jeff, you know, I forgive you for punching Travis in the nose. You know, I know it was a terrible thing, but I forgive you. So no problem, right? And Travis is over there going, okay, like what right do you have to forgive him for punching me, right? Right? Travis is going, only I can forgive Jeff. He punched me in the nose, right? All right, thanks, guys. You can go back down. Now. That was awesome. Thank you. All right. You get the point, right? You can only forgive someone if they've hurt you, if they've sinned against you. You see, Jesus doesn't just have the authority to forgive sins. He has the reason to forgive sins. He has the cause to forgive sins. Because think about this. When, it, when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, that means in some way that that man had sinned against Jesus for Jesus to offer to that man forgiveness. For Jesus to forgive him, he had to have done something against Jesus. But this man had never met Jesus, so, so how could he sin against him? You see, since Jesus has the divine authority to forgive sins, since he is the very Son of God, that also means that all sin, every sin, is ultimately an offense against him. David taught us this in Psalm 51, that amazing psalm of confession of his sins. 
he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now he sinned against Bathsheba. He actually had Uriah murdered. He had sinned and the consequences against lots of people. But the reality of the fact is that David understood what we all need to understand is that the ultimate person to whom we sin against is our God when we sin. Against you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Every lie, every theft, every murder, every hurtful word, every sexual sin, every lust, every one, every sin of all people for all time is ultimately a sin against our triune God. So think about that about you. That means every one of your sins is a sin against Jesus. Just like punching someone in the nose and and having to ask them for forgiveness. Every one of our sins is a punch in the nose to Jesus. It's that real. It's that personal. Yes, Jesus has authority to forgive sins because Jesus bears the weight of all sin. Our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What an important truth. All sin is against God. And all sin will be justly judged. It should sober us up an awful lot. To know that each of our sins is ultimately a punch in the heart of the love and the sacrifice of our Savior. Each one of us stained by sin. Well, as sobering as that truth is, the truth that Jesus willingly took our sin, the truth that Jesus so willingly and so powerfully and so lovingly forgives our sin should bring us into much praise. What a wonderful Savior we have to willingly take our sins and then to willingly forgive our sins, to take the punch and to respond in love. Jesus is so kind and so loving. He is strong enough to bear our sin and yet willing enough to forgive it. He is so holy so as to be offended by each of our sins and yet he is so loving to willingly take the penalty for our sins. The hymn, right? Oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, Praise the Lord, O my soul. See, those religious leaders were right. Only God can forgive sins. And he's so willing to do that. Two quotes. The gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's our Jesus. Well, there's this old folk story 
It's kind of like a Cinderella story, and it goes something like this. There's this girl who comes into a kingdom, and she's enslaved by a wicked woman and her three daughters. She's their slave, doing all the work around the house. Her enslavement keeps her secluded, away from not knowing what's going on in the outside world. The crown prince, the gallant prince, goes off to battle, and he kills someone that he didn't intend to, and he feels guilty about it, and he he regrets killing that person. And when he comes back, he notices that his royal tunic has blood on it. He tries to wash out the blood stain, but nothing will remove the stain. He can't get rid of it. He can't get the stain out. So he declares that any girl within the kingdom that can get the stain out is his true love and will become his bride and his princess. The poor and slave girl doesn't know anything about it. She's, the prince hands over the tunic and one by one, girls throughout the kingdom start to try to get the stain out. So one evening, the servant girl goes to do laundry and there's the prince's blood-stained tunic. Not knowing anything about the prince or the tunic, she just notices that it, it needs to be clean and she does the laundry and she cleans it. And the blood comes out. She doesn't know anything of the declaration by the prince. She's just doing the laundry. So the next day, the evil mother of the house sees the clean tunic, realizes what has happened, immediately grabs the tunic, grabs her eldest daughter, and runs to the prince to say that her daughter has got out the stain, that her daughter was his true love. Something's a little askew to the prince. He realizes that through various twists and turns that it wasn't this woman who got the stain out, but it was her servant that got the stain out. So he goes and rescues the servant girl and they're married and she becomes the princess and they live happily ever after. So what's the point of the story, right? The point of the story is that only your true love can get the stain out. See, the point of the story is that only your true love can meet your greatest need. Anyone who can get the stain out, oh, that's our true love. But nobody can get the stain out for themselves. No matter what we do, right? Through the best efforts of of all we do, the stain is still there. In each of our lives, the stain remains as we try to get it out. We try to do good works and the stain remains. We try to do self-help and the stain remains. We we try with money or or with success and, and nothing gets the stain out. The stain remains and the guilt and the sin. And we all know we have it. And we all know we can't get the stain out. That it remains. That only our true love can come and get the stain out. Only Jesus can get the stain out. Only Jesus, our true love, can remove the stain of sin in our lives. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Perhaps today, right now, as we go to prayer in just a moment, perhaps today, right now, is your day 
to take your sin-stained, scarlet heart and offer it to the true love of your life, to Jesus, the only one who can make it white as snow. And perhaps today, Christian, perhaps today is your day to come to grips with the truth that Jesus, the true love of your life, is enough. That the greatest fulfillment of your greatest need and of your everyday need is in Jesus. Perhaps today is your day to realize that the spiritual health and vitality of your life are actually your greatest need and your greatest joy and blessing. Let's pray together. Father, now we thank you so much for this amazing encounter that Jesus had with this paralyzed man Now the truth of that jumps off the pages and into our hearts and minds and challenges us. Each one of us, right where we're at, we are so prone to lift things above the importance of Jesus in our lives. And we just downplay and we we don't don't invest as we should. And what's really our greatest need? We're distracted by this world around us. Lord, we confess our sin before you right now as believers. We confess that we so often have your, the priority of you in our life way too low on the priority of, of how we actually live our lives. We confess it. And so in our confessing of our sin, Lord, we turn from it. And we ask you to help us to change. To give us not only the guilt and the, and the conviction of our sin, but then give us the energy and the dependence to rely on the Holy Spirit to actually change and to walk out here more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to his glory, understanding that he is our true love, our greatest need, and our greatest joy. Father, if there is one here today And I'm sure there is. There's probably many who've actually never come face to face with Jesus and actually relinquished the stain, sin of their heart and given it to Jesus, their true love, the only one who can wash it white as snow. That great exchange of saying, I'm a sinner and you're my savior and I will follow you my whole life. Lord, I pray right now from their own words and their own hearts, they'd be praying to you for the salvation of their souls. So we look to you now, so thankful that we can trust Jesus day in and day out. In his name we pray, amen.